Wait, we're not. We're other person to red button. How do you fuck off? Just press it. Just press it. Let's get going. No, no, that's all right. Don't worry about that. What what counts is from now on. All right, let's just get going. Okay. All right. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Red Star Over Asia, the podcast that covers Asian politics, history, and social movements from a socialist and communist perspective. Today, we will be talking with a very special guest about the Indian farmer strike and the resurgent movement happening in India. It's all very exciting stuff. I don't get any love for this, but I'm like, I will argue this until the day I die. The, uh, that the Indian bourgeoisie is the dumbest bourgeoisie in the world. But first, let's introduce our co-hosts and then our guests. My name is Mike, based in Busan, South Korea, and we have Bori. Bori, how are you doing? Hi, Mike. Um, I'm Bori. I'm based in Seoul. Great to see you guys again. Absolutely. All right, and then we have uh, Jack, also up in Seoul. How are you doing, Jack? How's it going, comrades? Uh, welcome to the podcast. All right, and then we have uh, Jay uh, from Guangzhou, but currently exiled in the American Empire. How are you doing uh, in that shithole country? Awake and in the Midwest. All right, and then we have a very special guest today to talk about the uh, events in India going on with this farmers' movement, Ashok Kumar. So Ashok Kumar is an Indian American activist. Uh, socialist and academic. He is a lecturer at Burbank University, a recent author of a very interesting book, uh, Monopsony Capitalism. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But first off, uh, Ashok, how are you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm in uh, lockdown London, just waiting it out, you know? Oof. Yeah, we're luckier in South Korea, I guess. But uh, yeah, tough times in the UK and the US. Over the past year, there has been a massive uh, social movement in India around three sets of bills that dramatically reform how agriculture works in India. There's been a massive response on the part of Indian farmers. Uh, In November, we saw possibly maybe the largest general strike in history by some counts, 250 million people. So uh, farmers in uh, Punjab and other sort of breadbasket regions of India have come out in mass against a set of legislation put forward by the right-wing Hindu nationalist Modi government that will deregulate the agricultural sector uh, and immiserate farmers even more than they already are. So there's been massive mobilizations in uh, the capital and across the country. So Ashok, uh, you're you know you're very familiar with this area. Your book touches on this. So can you sort of give us a general context of what is what's happening with these? What are these farm bills, and why is there such a uh, aggressive response on the part of these farmers to these this legislation? The protests of the encampment. I mean, obviously, the protests predate the the when the encampments began. But well, I'll get into that in a minute. But basically, the the bills were kind of rushed through in September under the kind of auspices of COVID emergency bills. And it, yet, like you said, there's three bills, um, and it's a bit kind of a bit bureaucratic to try and explain the various acronyms that are involved with it. But basically, what you had is 
In the 1960s, you had a series of laws that were passed that uh, protected uh, 23 um, uh, crops that were produced that were uh, seen as kind of cash crops or that had lots of um, variability and and were kind of at the whims of the vicissitudes of the market. And uh, it, it said that there was a minimum that they would pay for these crops. And these would be done through uh, the way that it would be uh, purchased was through government-owned mundies, these kind of basically wholesalers that are orchestrated and organized by the state. And that's the only place where farmers could sell these products. And then those products were then um, kind of, they would be so- sold off in kind of auction style to various different kind of distributors. And that was the way that you would kind of protect farmers. And so the, what, what the bill does is a kind of clever way of not abolishing these APMCs, these mundies, it's not abolishing these kind of committees that established the Mondays, which are then administered through the state's structure. It's 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 imposed by the federal system, but it's it's administered through the through state structures. APMCs are these committees, and Mondays are the actual kind of wholesale areas that where where farmers can sell to distributors. Uh, the MSP is the minimum prices that you have to give the minimum uh, support pricing. That's what MSP stands for. Basically, it doesn't abolish any of that. What it says is okay. All it does is it says, you know, and this is the same kind of neoliberal discourse that you use everywhere, which is like we're increasing choice. There's nothing wrong with choice. You have a problem with choice. That means that you're selling a bad product, clearly. So it's like if what they say is that like we're just going to we're going to allow these farmers to sell the private uh, buyers. It's not alongside selling in Mondays. The problem with that is that you have basically large conglomerates and financiers that play the long game. You know, it's like any kind of, you know, finance capital with anything. Like I remember back in the day, one of the, the models for like Starbucks was, I mean, I don't know how true this is, but they'd be like, they'd be like a little like cafe that was popular in some small dinky town. And they would open up a Starbucks on the left side and the right side, and they would run at a deficit. And then basically they would bleed that coffee shop dry. And then once it packed up and left, they would, they would undercut it. And then the, one Starbucks would stay, the other one would leave. And then they would just like, put whatever price they want on, on coffee. Similar to like Uber, for example, which like loses money on every ride, but basically is trying to price everyone out. And it's based on like large kind of VC capital, right? So it's like, similarly here, what you'd see is that, you know, you have large conglomerates that are trying to basically, you know, increase the terrains of profitability, which is what they're trying to do in, in with agriculture in India. I mean, it's really shocking that for an indus- fairly industrialized country, almost 70% of the population still is, you know, dependent directly or even indirectly on, um, on agricultural labor, right? So um, by indirectly, I mean that they're working part seasonal farmers, seasonal kind of um, laborers. And then there's hoarding, which is like allows for hoarding, which, you know, in agriculture, because it's seasonal, if you're allowed to hoard and you're like, completely up for a kind of supply it's based on supply and demand the people that can hoard longer especially with non-perishable products you just sell it during a non-seasonal period when um, and and all of a sudden you can jack up the prices it's pretty simple right and so hoarding is like always bad but it's particularly bad for agriculture and then the last one is getting rid of the ability for to contest this through the courts um and or at least restricting it so i mean the main main opposition is the first first bit, and yeah, that's kind of the the breakdown um, of that. And then you had a protest movement 
in response to that, that was driven by farmers in Punjab and Haryana region, the kind of breadbasket um, regions of India, and then also Western UP, Western Uttar Pradesh. These are like areas that are both highly agriculturally rich around the products that are being uh, included in these 23 MSPs, particularly around uh, rice and wheat, and also that they're that they are uh, their proximity to Delhi, you know, is quite important as well. Particularly, I'm talking about like Western Uttar Pradesh, and and so you know, you had 300,000 workers set up this encampment, and it's kind of on a rolling basis. And it's it, you know, it's really interesting to read about how the kind of the ways in which it has been organized, particularly from Punjab region. It's like fully taken on a kind of the ways in which people have been driven to you know, take turns and, 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 and villages are like working together to provide food. And it's just, it's pretty amazing actually. And they've kind of mainly blocked key arteries around Delhi region. Uh, the strike in, it's a bit more complicated, the strike that took place, the quarter of a million people, because, you know, you have large, large unions in India, many of them affiliated to communist party, at least two of the, two of the, the big ones, uh, CITU and I, 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 AITC, affiliated to CPM, Communist Party Marxist, Communist Party India, respectively. But they are, um, you know, bogged down by decades of bureaucracy and routine. And actually, they do this yearly. This year, they had seven demands, particularly around these anti-labor laws that were passed. The anti-labor laws that included like restrictions on the ability to strike, restrictions on uh, and allowing employers to fire workers more easily expanding how many work that you know you need a, a more how, what proportion of workers you need in order to get recognition for employers from employers and so that was the primary driver I would say of the trade unions uh, who went on you know the unions calling for the strike but then they also included one of the seven demands was around repealing the labor law so i think it's it's a bit more complicated than this was you know a solidarity strike i mean typically these strikes have been organized as a way to divert you know it's like symbolic Rather than, I mean, one day strikes don't do shit. I mean, let's be honest. Right. I mean, it's just symbolic. I mean, if you want to do something, go on strike indefinitely and then don't tell people how, like when you're going to end it. I mean, that's that's literally the only problem. Usually one day strikes are kind of almost, you know, they're used as furloughs by employers, right? We know that even mm -hmm. everywhere. So, I mean, it's not, it's more symbolic than everywhere. I mean, like even in London, I mean, Britain, like 10 years ago, you had all these like brain dead bureaucrats being like, general strike. I'm like, just ask for an extra pound per hour for your employers. Like we don't need any showboating, like talking, talking left, acting right bullshit. So that's what I feel like. I've been a little bit more like cautiously supportive of like the trade unions do this kind of stuff, which is good, but also is it building militancy? There's no, there's no real, there's no real evidence of that, but yeah, it's really good. What's happening. I mean, it's just, I mean we'll get into it, but there's been a historic, obviously antagonism between, the interests of farmers and farmer organizations and unions and kind of traditional trade unions and and worker organizations so all right so you you made the point that like the the government is trying to sell this bill is like well you know we'll keep the the system but you just have increased choice some of the stuff we were that i've seen is that um so one big thing about this is that it, it's going to kind of redefine how like land ownership works so like in a lot of these communities in punjab these farming communities like the idea of like land ownership, there's not necessarily like you own your land and there's like a deed on paper that's filed in an office that shows that you own this land. And that part of this is trying to formalize that so it makes it easier to actually buy these people out. 
Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I just think, I actually think that in Punjab, it's probably the most developed idea, uh, conception of like land ownership uh, because it's very cash crop heavy. Um, I think there's a lot of regions where it's much more uh, the definition, that kind of what, what is defined as land ownership, what's not is a bit more ambiguous. I think that the bigger problem is less around the ambiguity of land ownership and not with this bill. I think the bigger issue is the erosion of uh, the, not the direct erosion of, but the erosion of, uh, it, it creates huge rent-seeking constituencies of, people, of organizations and bodies and financiers that can then erode the law, the agrarian reforms of the 1950s. You know, you, know, you had the kind of land at the tiller law that was announced by Gandhi in the 1930s that, you know, one of the first laws that India should pass is like kind of land of the tiller law because India had a kind of system of feudalism. I mean, Jaminda system where you had huge tracts of land owned by a handful of people, right? Like most of the world. And they broke up much of that. Uh, so there were limits on how much land some one individual could own or a family could own. It was, you know, typically 30 acres, no more than that. So you had a lot of distribution. You did have quite a bit of distribution of land. Certainly not as far as it should have been, or not nearly as far as it should have been. But you did have that. You had a breaking up of the, of the system, the Jaminder system. But with some cash crops, that's not the case. Because they said, okay, well, this having 30 acres with certain kinds of crops will undermine our ability to produce sufficient amounts. So what it does is basically, it doesn't do this directly as much, but indirectly, um, my reading of it at least, is that indirectly the whole point is that you make it so that it becomes increasingly difficult for smaller farmers to, to subsist or to, and, and, and what you do is increase the political power of larger farmers. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a form of dispossession. I mean, they've, they've said it basically said as much, you know, Modi did this speech where he says, Oh, this is going to be great for technological investment. There's nothing in the bill that's about technological investment at all. I mean, this is the way that they've distributed everywhere. I mean, I went, I was on some, network uh i don't know like a few weeks ago and the, they were just reading talking points from from the from the indian embassy and they were like this is going to be great for investment this and that it says nothing about it but the assumption is that it'll drive out a sufficient number of of smaller farmers and increase the degree of monopoly power for larger farmers larger farm conglomerates which will then increase the uh investment in this sort of labor saving technology I guess indirectly it affects how um, it works, but I'm it's it's unclear what the direct effects of it will be on direct ownership. That's your kind of reading on what they intend to do with the land reform bills. But what strike the hearts of the farmers that led them to strike against it? If it's like not explicit. What the direct bill is, it isn't, it's, it's like, if you have, um, we have to look at the composition of the farmers who are doing this, right? It's not, it's not farmers in like Bihad really driven by, I mean, Bihad's really abolished their APMC system, but like, you know, 98% of farmers in Bihar are subsistence farmers, right? These are farmers that are, uh, not subsistence farmers. They're selling their products. So their class composition, their class position is a little, is is different from the from subsistence farmers and lots a huge proportion of indian farmers are not subsistence necessarily but like 
so close to subsistence that it's like the benefits of, of and they're not really even often even delivering to Mondays because you have to have access to a lorry and, and you have to have resources and sufficient amount of surpluses produced to sell into a Monday, right? So all of a sudden, those people who have access to it aren't the kind of poorest farmers, right? That's just a reality. So it's not that, that's not, the, the issue is not, um, so what the the drive, the kind of motivation was by farmers that were a little, that whose position was a slightly different. I was being kind of, it was weird. Like I was attacked by these new school Maoists. Um, Cause I did a thing <laughs> on BBC maybe like two months ago when it was first starting. No, that's like, when you know you're on the right track. Yeah, and I was just like, who the, what the fuck is this, man? And they were like, you're like, you know, uh, they were making all kinds of really absurd. They're like, oh, you're like defending the kulaks, the kulaks. Why are they always obsessed <laughs> with the kulaks? Kulaks wasn't even really a thing, man. Like, I don't even think, I think it's just <laughs> overblown bullshit. But I mean, it's just like they were, but also it's like, yeah, if you're a kulak and you're opposing, you know, collectivization, whatever you might think of that, that's a reactionary position. But if you're like a kulak and you're opposing like the complete corporatization of the farming sector, it's fundamentally a different antagonism, right? Like even if you take right. them at their argument. But yeah, they're, I mean, whatever, they're they're obviously crazy. But the difference is that like here, here it's the composition is different. And they, this is undermining their, the price they're getting per Per product. In the short term, it might actually be that you have overinvestment to drive out the Mondays and the APMCs. But in the longer term, there's, an, is there's a recognition by the unions. I mean, by all the unions, really, up and down the country, the farmers unions, even the more reactionary ones, even the ones that are like tied to BJP or right wing parties, recognize that this is what this is what's happening, that you, this is a, leading to the abolition of this, this system, the, of that, the MSP system. Minimum, price, uh, minimum support price system. So that recognition is the reason why they're, you know, still, I mean, this is what's so crazy. They're like, in India, I would argue this, and I, I've tweeted about this a few times. And um, because my the, my followers are like guilty Westerners, I don't get any love for this. But I'm like, I will argue this until the day I die, the, uh, that the Indian bourgeoisie is the dumbest bourgeoisie in the world. Hands down. They're just stupid. They're morons. That's stiff competition. They're dumb, dude. They're <laughs> yeah. so stupid. It's just, it's shocking. Um, but they were like, they're like, oh, you know, they're like, and there's also like, they're just so, they're just flagrant. They're just like all like, oh, these workers, these um, farmers, they just, they don't know. They don't know what's going on. Like, this is good for them. And it's like, dude, they're literally dying in their hundreds and freezing to death and staying in the rain and the cold in for months and months and months. But in their head, they're like, these monkeys are too stupid to know that, like, what's good for them. You know, like, I mean, not only are they dumb, they're just also like, it's this is why the post-colonial theorists are so stupid. They're like, oh, you know, like, Western bourgeoisie is, I mean, they have a point, you know, some of them, like, debate Chakrabarty and other people being like, oh, the Western bourgeoisie are much more benevolent. And that's why you're the emergence of the welfare state. This is in uh, Dominance Without Hegemony. And then they say, oh, you know, South Asian bourgeoisie are much more... Um, are, are much more sort of uh, aggressive and, and, you know, kind of um, in imposing I- I the violence of, 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 of capital. It's like there is some truth to that, but then there's also like, I mean, it's obviously absurd. Their position's absurd. But you when you meet some of these ghouls, you're like, 
okay, maybe the, the post-colonial theorists have a point, but they don't obviously have a point. It's like the 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 drive for it's clear that they can see that this is this is going to affect them in the long term. So I did want to get a grasp on like. It's it's hard to grasp as a person living in a practical island, a small island. Uh, North Korea is our only only connection to the continent, and we're cut <laughs> off from that. And uh, it's pretty international news is we're pretty isolated from that. It's all filtered. So India, it's just like an ex- exotic place, and the scale um, of the strike, it's just. Epic. I, I just don't know how to come to terms with like how to even think about it. Uh, so I just wanted to have this small question on what what do you have any good examples on how to start thinking about the scale or something like that? Yeah, I think it's really. I mean, I don't know if have you, any of you have read David Graeber's Direct Action. I think it's actually his best text. But in that, he has a bit where he talks about this bit about scale, where he's like talking about the there's an organization in Karnataka. That's the state my family's from. So the South Indian state of about 60 million people. And he's talking about the KRRS, which is the Karnataka Raita Ranga Sangha, which is, Raita means farmers. So it's like farmers union, the Karnataka farmers union. At the time, they had 10 million members in a state of 60 million people. They used to call demonstrations within a day that have a million people. They get like 10% of their, within like two days, you know, like three quarters of a million people. And people were like, what, how did you do that? And they're just like, like, we just, it's not even like, imagine, you know, with like, if it, you know, you're in a political organization in the U S I mean, a union's different, but like a political organization in the U S like a kind of caterized political organization, but we'd be like, okay, we have 20 members. We can bring out like 200 people right here. They're like, no, you don't even have to, an individual doesn't have to bring his like mother and brother there. It's like, if a family of members, even if like there's a large family of 10 people bring out one person, you're talking a million people. So it's like, yeah, I mean, in terms of scale, I mean, India is a hugely, like, obviously in so many ways, fucked up country. But one of the good things about and amazing things about India is that there's this long tradition of people. I also speak to like how much people are fucked and that you don't really have a welfare state and, you know, people have to look out for each other. I mean, there's a reason why, like, if you look at two trajectories of, of like, look, for example, Europe with a social like pact of Europe around welfare in the post like World War II class compromise. And then you look at the U S where it was like, you know, you don't really have a welfare state and you have jails you have in the U S a much more, you know, antagonistic, at least in some parts of the U S antagonistic tradition of trade unionism. There's a really good bit about this in, um, in Jamie McCallum's book, global unions, local power. But Basically, you have a much more antagonistic tradition, whereas in Europe, they don't really have much more. Mil- I mean, there's sections that have like transport unions, et cetera, dock workers, dock workers everywhere, really. But but basically, people are just much more like they're part of the bureaucracy, right? Because you don't really have a welfare state in India. Everyone's in an organization, right? People are in sanghas. People are in trade unions. There's just that tradition that exists. Because you don't really have a welfare state in India, everyone's in an organization, right? People are in sanghas. People are in trade unions. There's just that tradition that exists. Um, even if you're right wing, you're in a union, right? Like when I was doing sort of union stuff in, in Bangalore, it's like it is hot shop organizing because the unions don't have any money in some sectors. But you go to a place and you're like, people are just signing up to the union. They're like, of course we'll be in that. Like who's no one else is looking out for us. The state doesn't give a shit. I think it's... Um, 
it's a scale question, but it's also like, I mean, saying that, you know, scale and, you know, PRD from like 2008 to 2018 in terms of protests was like 50,000 spontaneous strikes uh, that were wildcat. It's pretty sick. Um, even though they are not like political, there's no political organization or trade union really that's independent that they can join. So I guess it's just lots of workers, lots of strikes. It's kind of how it works, right? Yeah. So for context, 60 billion, uh, South Korea is like 40, 49 million currently. Mm -hmm. And the 1 million was how many people that were organized in two days, right? One million is yeah, like three quarters of a million. I remember, I think it, I was reading that in that tax file. I don't actually know the specifics, but yeah, sure, sure. One million is the current uh, total, like two percent of the two percent of the population of, of Korea. Wow. So, and it's it's amazing when people get at least like a tenth of that in a rally around the country. Yeah, but so, in Korea, I've heard that there's all kinds of stuff. Like, isn't there like the tradition of like coming to strike, shaving your head, wearing overalls and not like your overalls, wearing like workwear and bringing sticks to beat the shit out of cops? That's what I read somewhere. I guess in the in the good old days. <laughs> yeah, it, there, there are the glorious, glory, good old days. <laughs> oh, no, I thought that We put down the Molotov cocktails uh, when, when after liberalizations and... It's not that militant anymore. No, I I know yeah. the good old days where the, the leftists of all the uh, around the world uh, went to watch riot uh, porn uh, with South Korean metal workers beating beating the shit out of. It's the only porn I watch. That, really, that, <laughs> that's not that's not the case anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how Mike yeah. felt. That was my first exposure to Labor Notes conference. Wait, which Labor Notes conference were you at, Mike? Uh, I've been to several. I think uh, one of them was when uh, I made fun of you for, like, I, I was joking that you were visiting your summer home in Chicago. I think it was when you were studying in the UK. Uh, it was after, you know, you know, Labor Notes, people would have those, uh, all the socialist groups would rent out those hotel suites and have their various parties. All the cadre groups yeah. would try to recruit whatever. 20 something year old wayward university students would show up uh I mean, it was long ago really long ago in a hazy past of our youth i guess <laughs> your good old days <laughs> uh Ishok kind of briefly touched upon it but the reason why the sheer numbers were possible was because they were all kind of excluded from the welfare state to the to the extent that it exists but modi is having this kind of hindu nationalist uh cult of personality around him being built and i was curious how these farm bills were aggregated into his larger political project of excluding certain members because i read that the region that the farmers were striking they're chic so a minority religious portion they're excluded from the hindu nationalism like i'm i'm probably talking out of my ass here but i hope the point got across like how does this fit into the political project overall but i do get a sense that because the indian bourgeoisie are so dumb it might not have those <laughs> You're correct. <connections>, but <laughs> dumbest bourgeoisie in the world that's the line um i want to hear you say it. i want to i want to hear you say it um i'm i'm allowing you to say it <laughs> 
That's how it works. Um, you're not cancelable when I say that. Um, no, so, yes, it is the case that there's this tendency, I think, a little bit to... Okay, yes, it's true that like lots of the people who are driving this are Sikhs. That's been used, actually, by the state to... Again, I'm not like trying to refer to... I'm not trying to, like... This isn't like trying to big myself up, but I'm in this interview that I was doing on the BBC. It was so shocking because you're like, okay, this is just like lunatic stuff that like the the far right of India re, like produce, right? Like about, but the anchor on the BBC, she was like, there we have indications that like Khalistani militants are part of this protest. It's like Khalistani militants, Khalistani militancy hasn't been a thing for thirty years, dude. Like it hasn't had a thing since like. The massacres of the Golden Temple in 1984. Like, it's not a thing. But they're literally like, look at these Sikhs. And they're like reading from government propaganda. So in the sense of like, it was trying, they were trying to use that to marginalize them. But the motivations around the the bills themselves, I don't really think that that, ha- I think it's like, there's lots of other shit that this government is pushing that's obviously too, super chauvinistic and reactionary. I would say like a lot of the driver on what happened in Kashmir and the the, like the withdrawal of, parts of the constitution and allowing for like basically a settler colony colonial project. I know that's contested to say, but I, I think that part of the motivation because it was restricted in Kashmir, how much, who could buy the land. It was Kashmiris could only purchase land there. And now they're trying to get rid of that. It's part of a profit motive, but it's also part of a much more reactionary and like project of like, of trying to uh, expand like the, the realm of Hinduism, I guess. But I think that's secondary, right? Like I'm always like, I'm of a particular school of thought that thinks, okay, this is like not actually the primary motivation. The primary motivation is with this stuff is like, basically Modi is, I mean, when he was, when Modi was the head of Gujarat state, he was like pushing these really right-wing reforms. I mean, it's not like, no, it's not like, um, uh, and and then he was, he was, he was uh, cementing his support amongst corporate elite and those interests. And so that's kind of what this is about, you know, in lots of ways. So it's like both part of the ideology of, of Modi's politics, it's part of his politics, but it's also like a very, it's a, it's an electoral calculation as well. Like you're, you're able to win over urban elites. And well, the difference in India is like, it's like you go to the U S it's like, it is the case a lot of the times that Lots of reactionary politics are in rural areas. And I'm not saying that somehow that's the indication of is like how big the Democratic Party vote is versus the Republican Party vote. I'm not saying. But what I'm saying is that like we can basically say that Republicans are more reactionary than Democrats. By and large, people were voting for them. Uh, And so you look at the map and, you know, and you look at same in in Britain. It's like rural areas are are voting with the center right party or the right wing party and the uh, Urban areas are voting for the centrist party or left-wing parties. In India, it's an inversion of that. Like people who live in cities are demented, and I, you know, I hate them. But then people living in rural areas tend to be much more, uh, you know, quite, um, you know, uh, I guess they're voting for much more left-wing parties generally. Um, at local parties, they tend to be more left-wing. Depends on the state as well. Like if you go to South India, very. You know, it tends to be like if you look at Kerala, you look at Tamil Nadu, you know, the socialist by and large uh, policies or left social democratic par- politics under the, under the auspices of communism. Um, communism. And it's like also in like West Bengal, obviously. So that's kind of the breakdown of 
uh, of that. But I think in the, in terms of how this fits into a larger program of, I mean, Hindu nationalism, it's that you do have this kind of combination. It's also not the case that like Punjab happened to be productive and and, and is driving this, but Haryana, which is controlled by a BJP uh, chief minister and is also hugely involved in these protests. Same with West, with uh, Uttar Pradesh. It is the case that Punjab is led by someone from the opposition, but um, I just, I actually think it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think it has really, it, I don't think it's actually driven by chauvinism as much as it is like profits, really. And also so, like uh, liquefying, uh, you know, like what you can do is basically if you, you get rid of this, you know, you get, it's also, a, I think there's at some level of political calculation, you, you're, you're driving out, seven, you know, 65, 70% of rural areas into cities and it does have a, there's a political calculation probably there somewhere. Like, I mean, like electoral calculation, I imagine. I don't know. It's part of like, you know, primitive accumulation. It's part of like the developmental project, a process in their, a project in their mind. I can actually um, ask something here and rudely butt in, but, uh, well, yeah, you mentioned the non-sectarian kind of um, composition of these farmers' protests, and I was—I read somewhere in New Statesman that these farmers' protests are building a new form of solidarity and identity as a way to combat the uh, the ruling party's attempt to use sectarian politics to pit public opinion against these protests. I was wondering if you if you found that to be accurate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, anyone who's done like labor organizing can see like knows or any kind of organizing really knows that like it's like you go and organize a workplace you know like workers organizing against management it's one it's like one of the most like emancipatory feelings for people who are actually doing it and winning potentially but also it's like sulfuric acid to racism and chauvinism and reactionary politics because people can see and feel that it's like people there's a diverse composition of people that are like fighting with them. And there's a diverse composition of managerial and management and ownership and proprietary class that like is, is exploiting them. Right. That's what you see here. Right. Like you see that you have different casts of people, different religions, and they're coming together. And like, you know, that's not to, I mean, of course there's probably, you know, like loads of kinds of reactionary politics with individuals who are involved and stuff. But I think through struggle, well, people see the the you know the weaknesses of those that form that kind those kinds of politics that have been largely imposed or encouraged by the state. You know, like in previous uh, protests, I mean, Kashmir is off limits in India. It's kind of like like you go to Israel, no one like the left is doesn't talk about Palestine. This is what I find really annoying. When I mean, not to get off topic, but whenever people are like. Well, you know, people, if you go to Israel, loads of people talk about Palestine. I'm like, no, they don't. They're like fascists. Like, they're not talking about Palestine other than to be like, I want to kill Palestinians. But like, similarly in India, it's like Kashmir is off limits, right? And it's like, so what, but what you did see is that, you know, when the Kashmiri stuff happened, they're like, we're going to kill. And then they didn't, nobody really said anything. Then you look at the anti-CAA protests. This is a citizenship law introduced about a year ago, a year and a half ago. A mass protests of this kind of urban intelligentsia that were like against that. So it was very urban in its in its protests. And they were like, these are urban Naxals. Naxals being Naxalites were a movement from 1968 that was in Naxalbadi in, in, in West uh, West Bengal that was, uh, uh, you know, basically a Maoist struggle. And, and now it's like a 
different compositions of peasants that are under under the broad broadly called Naxalites. But anyways, and at one point, maybe like ten years ten years ago, they controlled a fourth of all taluks in India. So there's like a red corridor that ran all the way from the north all the way to the north of Kerala. So it was like kind of like it was a huge chunk of the country. And anyways, they were like they considered it kind of a huge existential threat. Introduced all these reforms in India, like the Mahatma Gandhi Rural Employment Program, which is the largest employment program in the world, in order to undermine them, right? Like, that's where you, it's like people are like, they wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for the Naxalites. Anyways, they were just like, oh, we're going to call, they just called everyone urban Naxals, urban Naxals. Anyone who's, my brother was called, an, or was like defined as an urban Naxal. Like, they basically, they put out a, my brother's an, act, an actor and an activist in India. And it's like, they just went for everyone, right? And they, if you look at the protests now, you know, there was a there was a a march early on where it was like thousands of people holding a farmers holding like portraits of of people, professors, students, like environmental activists, all these different people who'd been arrested and who still had detained and who'd been killed by the state. So it was just like an active effort by these farmers to be like, look, it's we're all in this together. You know, so it's pretty, it's very impressive. I didn't expect that, actually. I was like, wow, that's very impressive. Because you're sticking your neck out for people who had been basically dubbed successfully by the state as terrorists. And that's literally what the state constantly, like, anytime we, you're an anti, it's funny because I'm going, again, I'll, I'm just going off on one, but I'll say this, like, Rihanna tweeted, like, right, like right, this yeah. thing about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It literally <laughs> broke, you know, they'd be like, oh, this broke this the internet. It broke india dude like it was crazy they literally so she tweets this thing just being like why haven't we heard about this or like something like that like obviously totally in solidarity and it's sick that she did that right immediately the indian state goes into overdrive starts this like indian this hashtag indians against prop uh, uh propaganda and literally all of their like comprador actors and like these little like apparatchiks and appendages like brain dead Indian elites start tweeting literally the same exact tweet, like copy and pasted the same exact tweet, like formulated by the state. And you're just, and it's all like hashtag. So it was like kind of crazy. It was just like, this is nuts. Right. They had that obviously in the, and then Greta Thunberg, they were like, she tweeted this something, which is great. And then they were like, everybody was like, Greta Thunberg is an agent for China. And so it was like, it was amazing. Um, everybody lost their minds. And you're just like, people didn't understand like how India, how, they were like, wait, I thought Indians, I think that like in the West, the stereotype is like, Indians are so smart. And I'm like, have you met an Indian elite in India? Have you? Um, so anyways, yeah, that that happened. Yeah, I saw that. That was uh, pretty interesting to watch that play out. Yeah, the Rihanna tweet like triggered this whole like propaganda machine. Um, yeah, I saw that on Twitter. It was like literally it was almost like they sent out like a notice to all like the manager of, the, of these like Bollywood actors. It's just like everyone tweet this tomorrow at 10 a.m. Yeah. yeah, it was like, well, and also, I mean, this was an interesting. I guess we're jumping ahead a little bit. We had this question, too. Uh, there was this like interesting like because, you know, Twitter like obviously cooperates with this kind of shit. The Indian government went to Twitter, requested that they ban all of these activists who were spreading, you know, information about demonstrations and advocating on behalf of the movement or whatever. Twitter totally cooperated in, in suspending their accounts. I think most of them were later restored. But uh, we also saw some like other, I mean, I, I read about some pretty shocking instances of repression where like there were regional governments that were like threatening to not issue passports for people. 
They were saying, if you participate in these protests, we're going to take your name down. You will be ineligible for any sort of public sector job in the future. Can you talk a little bit about that? The, the, the repression and response to the movement? I mean, the thing is, okay. So in India, India is a very much, for people who don't know, it's a quite a decentralized system. I mean, you always had since independence, uh, in you know, the central government, whether it was like more kind of left social democratic governments like Nehru's government in the immediate immediacy, or it was like more neoliberal government since the really the late 80s, 90s. It, there was always a kind of centralization drive, right? And so, but what you had was, you know, you had, for example, in the 1950s, this they wanted to institute Hindi as a national language. We don't have a national language in India, despite what all the fascists would like you to believe. In India, we have over 20 languages that are, nation, that are nationally recognized. We have over, you know, 200 languages that are actually recognized as like, you know, um, like kind of secondary, second tier languages. Anyways, the point is that like, that when they announced that as a kind of illustrative example, they, like Tamil Nadu, for example, in South India was like ready to basically break break up the union, Everybody, like loads of, and then they were like, oh, no, 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 no. So there was like a recognition really of like linguistic states. And you had this kind of process of this constant tension, right? So it really is dependent on the state. So the states, some states have been hugely uh, uh, repressive. Um, and uh, I'm thinking of like places like, for example, Haryana. Haryana literally closed their border and refused people. That's like in the US, if like, the governor of Iowa like closed their border. Like that's literally not happened ever. Um, and so it's like uh, you had like barricades at borders with like people not being allowed to leave. Um, and then you had other other states that have threatened really crazy stuff. Um, Karnataka, which is led by the BJP, as well as like other places that have more kind of pro-government forces. But then also if you go to Kerala, there's been very pro, I mean, you know, pro protesters and, you know, like past resolutions completely opposing it and in solidarity with, with workers. So, or with farmers. So it really depends on the state. Um, but it's quite uneven, you know. So concerning what Ashok said earlier, so then would it be in a sense correct to say that uh, instead of using the farm, be- farm bills in service of that nationalism, uh, the Indian government is using nationalism against the the, the farm bills, uh, the, the resistance to erode the resistance against the farm bills and to marginalize it. Whereas the uh, struggle by the farmers and the workers is against the farm bill is actually eroding the the nationalism chauvinism a bit. Yeah, look, I think I'm. Um... I'm generally of the school of like a kind of, uh, I don't even know if this is the right reference to this, but like a kind of vulgar relationship between the base and superstructure. Like, I think it's like there is an economic drive and it's supported by various different forms of kind of rhetorics that and actions that are uh, attempting to cement uh, majoritarian rule. Like, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think, I think by and large, the drive is towards, uh, the motivation is often around the accumulation of capital and the and, and <clears throat> like lining the profits of, of lots of supporters. There's electoral considerations here as well, right? But then it's like, 
the secondary, the, mm. you know, the, the mechanism by which they do that is by, um, by using, um, this, these, these kinds of, these kinds of politics of division or whatever. Right. So, so it's a class agenda rather than like ethnic or cultural agenda in a sense. Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's both, but I think it's like, if we have to measure one versus the other, especially in this instance, it's, it's, it's obviously like, it's obviously driven by the, uh, you know, optimizing the conditions for capital and, and, and then mm. you, you know, it's like you find a kind of racial fix to, um, mm. you know, like, like a spatial fix, but a racial fix, you know, you find, you find that you, you sort of use that as a cudgel to, you know, to divide people. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's my simple explanation for that. I mean, I'm sure people would contest that, but when it boils down, like, that's really what it is, what is like the drive here. In this instance, I think. I think in lots of instances, but especially this one. Yeah, so obviously farmers discontent didn't just start with the recent legislation. Uh, what is some of the context that led up to this? I know there's been um, tens of thousands of farmer suicides, largely due to um, debt, for example. Yeah. So on the farmer suicides, you know, really you saw the rise of farmer suicides um, since uh, the introduction of like, um, you know, uh, the kind of neoliberal reforms and uh, around pesticides. And I mean, you really sort of had this influx into the market from the 60s, but you sort of had a, it, go, it, it got it sort of was like pumped since the 90s really um that's seen as a kind of turning point in uh, the economic system in india where before that you had a kind of you know you had import substitution investment after that you have a kind of export oriented production um and then uh and it becomes increasingly difficult for and you have a kind of move basically from like 1989 to 2009 you have this about 15-20 shift from rural to urban and it's not done through like you know, forced relocation uh, in the way that it's done in like China, for example, right? Uh, primitive accumulation in India happens in a much more insidious way of like, I mean, it's not even like the Enclosure Acts in, in England where, you know, you had laws that criminalized people stepping into the commons and stuff. In India, the way it would happen was that you just made it impossible for, for poor people to, to exist in rural areas. Uh, you made the indebtedness so high. You made like access to certain forms of seeds really like um, onerous, and and then you also at a cultural level change as well. I always cite this, uh, not always, but I always think of this uh, example. Like anyone who knows Bollywood so films knows, like you know, in like the '60s and '70s and '80s, especially in the '70s and like early '80s, you basically had like Bollywood films where it was just like, again, this is kind of a base superstructure t type thing, but. Bollywood films obviously very influential in, in 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 Indian society, but you know you you had a, the narrative arc was always like you know you have this peasant singing and dancing like with wheat and and cities were like places of like sexual depravity and and like decadence was like eschewed and so like people it was like that was the narrative arc you know it was very you know kind of Manichaean in the sense of like rural good cities and diaspora and western society like bad and so then what when that starts to change really is under neoliberalism like in the 90s all of a sudden cities are like 
you know, rural areas are where the bad guys come from, uh, you know, the dark skinned ba- bad guys. And then it was like cities are where, you know, um, was cities were celebrated. And it was like that diaspora, like this is film, very famous film, Dilwale Dulhani Aliyega Jayenge from the 90s, where it was like just this rich diaspora and that's what celebrated. And that's that becomes the kind of change. So it's, it's sort of like in lots of ways, there were all these built in incentives in Indian society that were like, trying to drive people into cities uh, at the level of culture, but also like making it in- increasingly onerous for people to live in rural areas. So then you see this spike of rural suicides um, in the 90s. And so much so it's like year on year increases of rural suicides. And lots of times people killing themselves by drinking the pesticides and that were dumped onto the market to make it impossible or difficult for smaller farmers to subsist or even survive. So they... Uh, so much so that by 2015, the government of India refused to collect or refused not to collect or refused to distribute any of the numbers around suicides. And they still say that, that there's every indication that you know, there's about 28 people killing, killing rural farmers in India committing suicide every, committing suicide every day. That's over 10,000 a year. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's like it's a it's a, it's a serious issue. But. On the question of uh, uh, historical struggles, I mean, there were obviously, and this also speaks to the kind of antagonism between the sort of Communist Party Marxists, which are like fairly hegemonic in the sense of like they are the ones that control the the lots of the political, you know, the states that where they had control or, or power, like Kerala now, West Bengal in the past, <clears throat> and even lots of the ones that they were they're winning seats in more recently. So. Uh, you know, there was a struggle um, in the mid 2000s in Nandigaram, and Nandigaram was a region in 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 West uh, in West Bengal where the ruling Communist Party Marxists, basically a number of companies like uh, I think Tata was one of the companies, which is one of the big companies in India, wanted this huge tract of land for like a factory or whatever. And you had a struggle between like lots of potentially Maoist affiliated, Naxalite affiliated groups and individuals in that region. And all of a sudden, the, the state, led by the Communist Party Marxists, murdered dozens of them. Um, I believe dozens. I think it's 28. But um, and uh, so this there was a genuine historic antagonism between these organizations. And I think what's changed now is. Uh, I mean, for example, the Bharatiya Kisan Sabha is CPM affiliated. Uh, you know, one of the largest unions of farmers that's supported by supporting this, these these struggles is is that what they've been so marginalized in India, like the, the the kind of communist movement. I'm saying communist, but like obviously, we know they're not like. Yeah, we know you mean that in like a nominal sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like kind of unreconstructed Stalinists, right? But like they are, um, I think, you know, they're great in lots of ways, but they're also terrible in lots of ways. But like they um, they are, uh, they, through that marginality means that like lots of these sectarian divisions, but not even just sectarian divisions, but divisions that are like deeply ideological, right? They're like, okay, they justify the mood that, that, killing in Nandigar by being like, look, there's a stage to capitalism. It's like classic Stalinism, right? They're like stagism. We have to go through these stages. That means that like you guys, we're going to have to liquefy your lives. 
make you into wage laborers, and then someday your great-great-grandchildren will own the means of production. So it's like kind of like it's obviously like insane, but it's also that like that stuff has kind of moved to the back because when you're so marginal, you got to look for friends anywhere, right? And so a lot of these sort of um, India's deeply deep. The Indian left is like you think the American left, which is barely existent, uh, is like sectarian. Like, what are you fighting over? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, the fuck are you fighting over? You have like you have nothing. Whereas like in India, they actually controlled states with like hundred million people, hundreds of millions of people, and huge amounts of resources, and they were fighting fascists. So like, yes, I mean they did have lots of sectarian, but uh, sectarianism, but that like there was a reason for that, you know. Whereas like, because they were doing electoral battles where they were actually winning and winning and losing and, you know, had access to resources. It was like, here, you're like, like, what that, what are you fighting over? You have no power. Um, so, I mean, I'm part of, I'm part of the sectarian left here. So I'm like talking to myself really. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, even though I live in the US, I'm still part of the sectarian US left as well. From you talked a bit about the, how a lot of these farmers are not, are kind of complicated because they own land, which most Indian farmers don't, but we've seen reports of how how landless farm laborers, not just farmers with their own land, have also joined the movement. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that structure of farm labor in India. Are there any tensions between small farmers and landless laborers? I think it's like, you know, the drive for it and the prime beneficiaries are obviously people that have a plot of land and have the resources to like transport goods to the mundis. And so you need a you know, sufficient, it might sound like nothing to get a lorry, transport the goods, but like the margin of these are so slim that like you have to have those resources to make it viable, right? Like we were talking about earlier. But what this the struggle has done is in lots of ways generalize that struggle, you know, like it's like people can see that there's a genuine bona fide struggle, 100 days, people really struggling for so long that lots of different sections are now joining I mean, historically, of course, there was a, and there is a, the antagonism comes from like the position of class. Like you have uh, landless people being antagonistic towards people who have land and employ them uh, is a class struggle, right? It's like, it, it makes sense. But right now, I think there's a recognition that this struggle is is uh, something that they they can all benefit from. Now, there's a diff- there is a kind of argument that... Uh, some have made, and these are the kind of government talking points that say, okay, they're not wholly illegitimate that says, okay, this, um, this, uh, 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 holds intact the existing structures, right? It does, it does do that. It it, it keeps intact, it kind of keeps in place and, and, and ossifies in lots of ways, existing structure. But, uh, Again, this goes back to the the Maoists' critique, uh, the new school Maoists, which are the worst kinds of Maoists, as we all know, um, are like uh, it doesn't. It, 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 it's there is some basis in reality in what they're saying, but it's like you have to analyze it from the the kind of material conditions that, that exist in India. Like it isn't a struggle against a communist movement that's trying to break up the lands, right? If that was the case, I'm not going to stand with these landed they're not landed okay that's an extent they're they have land yes but like and they do have land enough to like have enough surplus to sell that but they're not landed in that some of them might be but not in the same sense like 
You don't have 300,000 landed people in Punjab, right? Like, that's like, that doesn't even make any sense. The scale of it just doesn't make the, the, the critiques of what the government's saying, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because they're like, these are just the elites. I'm like, 300,000 just there, but you're talking like tens of thousands in all kinds of other states. I mean, how could that even make any sense, right? So there is a sense that this is a larger struggle. It's also that like, it is an existential struggle for for the for Modi in lots of ways because you can marginalize the Kashmiris. I mean, you could they literally make their mark by marginalizing uh, a people that they occupy, a land that they occupy. But the the thing is, and they can also marginalize urban protests like the CAA protests against the citizenship law. But it's really hard in Indian society that the 1980s kind of you know singing farmer thing. That has some resonance and people like it's really hard to like say these people, at, especially at that scale, it's really hard to say, okay, they, they are these, these like, the, they're these fringe elements, right? Like it's, it's very, it's become very difficult for the government. So there's a recognition by different sections of society, different kinds of compositions, like whether they be, you know, landless farmers or, or you know, peasants, um, peasants, yeah. Um, and I mean, that's what they are. Right. Um, uh, whenever I say that to like non-Marxists, they're like, why would you call them that? I'm like, it's just a definition of your relationship to the, to land really. And to landed people, it's not like I'm like, they're idiots. Um, even though Marx did kind of call them idiots, but it doesn't matter. The point is that like the, the, the those different sections are like, okay, we, we, we can win here. And there's a large, there, even if that they might not have that much of a stake with, with the laws themselves. That's something I've, I can only speak about this from an American context. I, I lived in Iowa for a couple of years where, you know, farmers have a very uh, weird, complicated place in society and economy, right? It's like back in the 1930s, the Communist Party organized farmers for the Holiday Association. And I was wondering, do you think, you know, you talk about new school Maoists. And is it, do you think like the left, in, I don't want to say it's like in general, but in general, should redefine how do you view sort of farmers in a sense of own land and sell some of their surplus. But you, it, it, it may not really be fair to call them small business owners, you know, because they do have long history with working with the labor movement and other working class groups. Well, I mean, I think the Midwest is a bit different in the U.S. Like you obviously had like family farm movements in Wisconsin. I mean, you had these kind of farmers I mean, when they had these huge tractor rallies in India. And I remember seeing images of like the protests in like 2010, 2011, where you had these kind of farmer tractors coming in and doing these protests for like against the labor laws that were being passed in like the anti-union laws that were being passed in Wisconsin. Uh, and, you know, you had a kind of farm labor political movement in Minnesota, for example, and it's still called the, I think, Farm Labor Party or something, the Democratic Party there, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I feel like Mike knows about party, this. Yeah. Um, corn raised Mike. I mean, I don't even know where Mike is from, but I'm just going to say he's corn raised. Uh, I'm from um, Tennessee. Do not confuse me for a Midwesterner. But I know what you're talking about. There is this sort of like some of these Midwestern states, Vermont, I think, has one too. You have these sort of like quixotic holdovers from like 19th century, early 20th century, like farm. Would it be like, you know, there's like five people in the state legislature who are like the Democratic Farm Labor Party. And it's just yeah, sort yeah, of just yeah. like nostalgic. It's like, if you, it, I think it's like, I think the consolidation of farming in, in the u.s i mean the composition of farmers is like it's like very there it's completely hegemonized by huge farmers right so the composition is just fundamentally different like 
this isn't like, you know, it's not the 1920s and 30s where you might have had a composition that was like different and organizable, right? But even then they were not, they weren't organizing farmers. I mean, the dominant organization of the Communist Party, my understanding were sharecropper organizations that were like mm. farm, largely landless, right? So I'm thinking of like, for example, like Ryan, Robin Kelly's um, Hammer and Ho, yeah, you know, Hammer in Alabama, Hull, yeah. the kind of rural organization there. Um, and I think that like, you know, you do have obviously Maoist organizations in the US that are like, we have a Sunbelt strategy, not naming any names. And um, yeah, there's like, you know, five people from New York who like moved to Arizona and they're like, this is our. No, not strategy. Arizona, man. Durham, North Carolina. Come on, bro. Um, well, yes. All right. Well, we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get in trouble for this. Let's not go into that. Yeah, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get canceled by those five people in a country I haven't lived in for over a decade. But yeah, I think um, yeah. So I think it's that. Uh, I think it's like I don't think we can just be like, oh, let's. I was talking to someone else about this. They're like, what kind of lessons can we can Americans learn from what's happening here? I'm like, not really anything. Like, I don't mean like. I think it's like you can learn that like sometimes you gotta just organize a massive uh, encampment and not leave. That's what you can learn, you know? Like, but I don't think it's like, now you should go out and organize like farmers. In India, farmers are like small-ish farmers and farmers that are like, you know, like, I mean, it's also kind of crazy. They're like, these rich farmers, I'm not gonna harp on all of this. It's like, these rich farmers are literally living on a, like on the back of a truck for months, like in the pouring rain in rags like that doesn't even make any sense anyways whereas like in the u.s it's like the proportion of farming produce that are produced 90 whatever percent 95 percent whatever are probably produced by huge farmers the kind of social power that that small farmers would have is like inconsequential like they just don't have the power to do anything so i think like when i people always like you know people have a total misunderstanding of i think marx where they'll be like they are just talking about the, you know, they just like only care about workers in industrial like uh, sectors because it's like male way up, pale and stay. I'm like, no, listen, the reason why the Marxists talk about the most valorized sections of capital and the workers that work there isn't because we're like these people matter more than like a sex worker or like a cleaner. Obviously, as humans, they don't matter more. It's that they have more social power because we live under a system called capitalism. And that capitalism means that like some people who produce certain kinds of things in society have more power than other people who don't produce those things. So it's like, that's just a question of power. It's an analysis of power, right? So it's like, I, I always refer to like recent struggles. Like you look at like, you know, like uh, Tunisia, Egypt, those struggles in the Arab Spring. And then you look at like the green movement in Iran, problems notwithstanding. And then also like the red shirts in Thailand, huge mass movements that were popular, that were taking over squares, rah, rah, rah. <clears throat> the reason why Egypt and Tunisia were like at least successful in like upending the existing, you know, government order, social order in some ways, Tunisia more than Egypt, yeah. is because they called it after the mass protests that are taking over the squares, they called a general strike on day 16, day 18 and successfully did it, which like, brought the government to its knees. So our analysis of capitalism means that like, we're not just like being like, oh, we have to just organize the most marginalized sections of society. Great, if you're doing that, props. But it's like, we have limited resources. In that limited resources, we're organizing 10 workers who work at a dock or 10 workers that, I don't know, are academics. I can guarantee you that the dock workers have more power. I go on strike, people are like, get fucked, bro. 
Um, yeah, of course we should organize all these people. So I'm saying like organizing farmers in India <laughs> makes a lot of sense because India, it's a huge part of the, the composition of India. It's still like, you know, in the US, who are we going to organize, right? Like what's a farmer in the US? It's just like some dickhead who gets a huge amount of subsidy from the government. The, the 250 million people uh, strike that was in solidarity with the farmers. So what were, uh, well, partially in solidarity with the farmers, as you said. Uh, so what are some of the other demands raised by that strike? So was there like, so was there any long-term thing? You said it was only for like uh, a day or so. Um, was was there any long term agenda that was behind it, and how much of that is in you know overlapping with the farmers' struggle? So my memory is that there were seven demands with that um, strike. Um, part of it was was actually I think one of them was to rescind the farmers' laws, <clears throat> the anti sort of farmers' laws reforms, and then. Uh, a number of them addressed the labor reforms that were introduced. So one of them was about, in order to get recognition, I think they'd expanded the proportion of the workforce that the workers had to get. That was part of it. Uh, also that in, in order to go on strike, they had to like, you know, they changed the notification rules around that. Also it made it easier for larger employers to fire workers. Obviously this is about optimizing the conditions for like transnational capital, obviously, and the domestic bourgeoisie in India. Um, uh, you know, I mean, like just to, as a ref reflection of how horrific, um, and like ghoulish, uh, the Indian creamy layers are, they were like, I was in a gym in India, you know, trying to get jacked. And so I was like, I was there and there was, there was, a this, there were these two, this is a year, like not year, this is like four or five years ago. There was these two, like douchey looking corporate guys, like just working out, talking. I never like really listen. I didn't just like do my own thing, but I was listening in on this and they would just passed a law in the neighboring state of Tamil Nadu called um, uh, one rupee rice. Basically it was like one rupee rice. So like one rupee for a, a, a packet of rice that you can feed like three people with. So it's basically free, right? Rice, just free rice. That's just the program in Tamil Nadu. It's like, it's, it's not that deep. Huge, these guys were like, everyone's fleeing Bangalore, which has a huge number of Tamil Nadu workers fleeing to go back to Tamil Nadu. And they were just whining about this, right? I had to just interrupt. I'm like, wait a minute. You're telling me that they're like, their wages are so shit that they, they was all they needed was a, like a one rupee rice uh, incentive to leave, right? Like that's how bad it is in India. So, I mean, the reforms in India is like obviously trying to address some of that. And also I think one of the reforms was about expanding the Mahatma Gandhi rural employment program. So this was introduced in like, I think it was in the mid 2000s. Basically it was targeted in this, the red corridor. So it was saying anyone could, uh, anyone who wants a job can get a job and they're paid. And I think it's like 80% are women who take this up. And if there's no jobs available, you can say you want to, you can say you're going to do this or that task and they'll, they'll pay you. I think it was about expanding that program. I mean, they, it is an expansive program. In So if you're in a rural taluk, then you can have access to that program. And it was also about, um, I think, increasing the amount of remuneration around that as well. So that's my understanding. But it's like a series of, of 
fairly defensive demands, you know, yeah. I think, I don't think any of them are like, I mean, that's how it's been really for the last 30 years. Most of the demands are like defensive in the sense of like <clears throat> preserving this or that institution that existed in India or this regulation or that regulation. I'm not like making new ground or taking new ground. So uh, how is this quarter billion uh, strike uh, mobilized? Like how is this organized altogether? So um, there are 11 union federations. I think it's 11 union federations in India, six primary ones, affiliated to the major uh, political parties as well. And I believe all of them called the strike, bar maybe one, the BJP one. Um, (laughs) But in the past, all of them called these strikes for like various things. And so it's like uh, the workers in those sectors, like, banking and places that are heavily have high union density, industrial unions that aren't like labor intensive, more capital intensive labor, uh, industrial unions like auto workers and stuff all kind of go on strike on these days. But also it's kind of like, it's not so much like this, but like, you know, in France, it's like 9% union density. But when they go on strike, like 90% of people go on strike because the their their negotiation, the lowest rung of their negotiation is is a universal, right? Like, so if, if they increase like a variable minimum wage of like 16 to 19 francs or whatever, the 16 will be applied to the 90%. So it's like, there's a direct material reason why 90%, even if union density is fairly low in India, it's a more, it's, it is the case that like you, once there is a, this stri- kind of strike called lots of different parts go on strike, even if um, they're not, even if they have relatively low union density. Um, I think it's called, it's not really organized in the same way. And I'm, I'm not in any, I mean, I've historically not given that much weight to these things. So that means I haven't really paid that much attention to it. But my understanding is that it's like, it's kind of called, I mean, these are just like really rusty unions. I mean, in lots of ways, they're really impressive as well. Like in Bangalore, they, you know, they have gone from like, and this is also an indication of how much in Bangalore's expanded, but they've increased by like threefold, I think, since the 90s, you know, in their union density. And they have, lots of different organization and arms and uh, in terms of like sections that they organize. So it's, um, it's, it is, it's not like totally unimpressive, but it is very, very bureaucratic. Uh, and so I think what they do is they put the word out and then people, you know, and then people organize it in their areas. Um, but it doesn't feel like it's, uh, like there's a lot of organization necessarily going into it. It's not, it's, it's, I'm not. I'm never really that impressed by him. It just feels like May Day, which is fine. May Day's cool, but it's also like no employer's like, "Oh, we're shaking in our boots. It's May Day." Oh, you know, people are like, "Oh, it's May Day." It's like MLK Day in the U.S., right? It's sort of like a symbolic, you know, important in some ways, but yeah, it's not threatening to the system. Well, this actually is a good segue into our next question, which is about um, so. The we talked about the farmers movement. There's several different farmers union. You already talked about the the primary one. I won't uh, butcher the Indian pronunciation. Um, but uh, you also touched on how the fact that like in India we do have these like mass, at least nominally, communist parties. There's like a Marxist Leninist one. There's a Maoist one. There's the Naxalites, which are their own kind of. The Marxist Leninist one is the Maoist one. Oh really? All right. Yeah, I can't keep track of the alphabet. Soup. It's not like. 
It, you, it well, depends if you're well, saying Marxism, comma, Leninism, or Marxism, dash, Leninism. Marxism, <laughs> dash, Leninism, you're a bit like, you're out there, yeah. bro. But Marxism, comma, Leninism, I'm like, great. Uh, well, it's good to know that they have uh, the same problems that uh, we have in the U.S. in terms of the alphabet soup. But it, there's a lot more social weight and the stakes are higher in India. So, the, you know, these parties can actually like marshal a lot of like uh, uh, they can marshal popular support. They can marshal mass movements. They have connect organic connections, structural connections to trade unions. They have strong electoral bases. I mean, there's a couple, you know, regions in India that have had communist governments uh for a number of years. Um, what has been the relationship between the organized socialist and again, nominally communist, whatever we want to call it, left and this farmer struggle? Because I'm curious, like this farmer's movement, the main farmer's union, does, does that have any relationship with any of these communist or socialist parties? Like how is the left, the organized socialist communist left intervening in these farmer's movements? Were they already there on the ground? Is there like a large contingent of farmers who are already organized and, uh, constituents of these parties can you talk about that a little bit yeah so that's a great question i think it's like you did have like i said before you did have this kind of weird not weird understandably uh historical kind of you know you had the kind of sino-soviet split which was reflected in the indian context and the south asian context broadly and then you had various different historical antagonisms between these different organizations but then you did have these Political organizations like the Communist Party Marxist, this is CPI, parentheses, Marxist, versus the just Communist Party India, which is the original Communist Party, which is like, Communist Party Marxists are better, but it's also Communist Party Marxists, I mean, it's just better um, for lots of reasons. <laughs> but they're just also like, they also have had power, right? They've had power in West Bengal. They had power in, um, they've had power in uh, Kerala, uh I mean, Kerala, we say for a long time, you know, EMS Namdi Dipad in 1957 was the first democratically elected communist government, big C communist government in the world. And it's like, you did have this kind of weird relationship, but then these organizations created these various Kisan Sabas, which are like kind of farmers unions. And those farmers unions, because they were well, well resourced and they were also like national, part of national organizations, became large and um, became well resourced and became... Um, dominant right so the relationship is is very direct right like that's one of the ways in which they've also attempted to marginalize them it's that you do have a lot of like you also have a lot of unions that are like gandhi and socialists right gandhi socialists kind of because gandhi was a you know he he wanted to preserve rural life and he thought you know uh cities were just like depraved so it's kind of like if you if you look at lots of these uh, farmers unions and farm they are they have some kind of political affiliation lots of the big ones uh, they may not be with the dominant organ dominant communist parties but lots of them have i mean if you look at the kind of acronyms in india like each state has like dozens of political organizations that have various unions that are connected to them and so yeah it's direct it's the, the relationship is direct it's uneven it depends on which state like you know you come to like Southern states, it's, it's a bit more direct, the relationship between these kind of communist organizations and, and the political parties. Uh, whereas if you go to the, like places in which communists have been weaker, the relationship is also weaker, but you still have political organizations. Like in Haryana or Gujarat or UP, uh, Uttar Pradesh or Madhya Pradesh, these states kind of the reactionary belt. I mean, Punjab isn't reactionary, but you know the other ones, obviously Gujarat is. 
It's a horrible place. But they th- there's a much weaker relationship between the I mean the Communist Party you know in, in Gujarat used to be quite good uh, quite quite strong. Like I was at a, a communist camp in Kerala like two years ago. Um, and there was this older kind of organizer who used to be with the Communist Party uh, you know, for years when he was younger. And he was saying this story about how in Gujarat he was, uh, you know, there, this is in the mid-60s, he was an uh, organizer with the, with the Communist Party. And uh, there had been this kind of attack, like a fascist attack. And so they, were, they set up these kind of anti-fascist meetings, like, uh, to, like they were just doing some organizing there around that. So he was tasked with organizing those. So he organizes the first meeting and then there's this like young guy who comes there and he's, he's like, oh, what? Don't you know how the Indian left operates? Like you must be new. We always start like a half an hour late. Let's go have some tea. So this happened every week as they organized it week in, week, week out. And this young organizer would come there very diligently. And only like decades later, he said that he realized and saw that this was actually, he realized that this was actually a young Modi. Modi, who was sent by the local RSS, RSS, which are like Nazis. I'm not just saying that as hyperbole, like they love Nazis, they're Nazis, they're organized around, like they have basically like, like kind of brown shirt style organization. They have like, you know, they're a huge organization that is like, you know, far right militant organization that he, that Modi was, this isn't conspiratorial, it's like very well known was a organizer for since he was like 16 or 15 or like, and he like lived in their little like cult place for like, and like cleaned, you know, he was like, the way it works is it's like you, you move into one of those places and then you like basically the children like take care of the place as the organizers go out and do their proselytizing or whatever. So it's like, it's, um, and he was in there from a very young age and, um, and then only he doesn't even really distance himself from that history, but it's kind of mad. Um, sorry, again, I'm going off on one, but I always thought that was like a bit crazy, but also like kind of just crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah, there is this weird. I read about this a little bit. There's the uh, what's her name? She's a famous kind of she's Indian, but she became this like sort of like neo-Nazi like figure. Uh, sh- her name escapes me. But yeah, there is this weird nexus between like Hindu nationalism and then like nazism i guess it plays into the whole like aryan thing yeah i right. guess i mean it's like there is an aryan thing just, you i know, kind of like, went down a rabbit hole one time and it was like what india like, obviously like, there's, there's this, this contest, contestation where they're like the south and the left generally will say okay there's this in you know and it's also historically accurate you did have a aryan invasion from like what is the you know the caucuses caucuses and that invasion fundamentally changed the composition of india and you do have this this kind of, you know, like one of the two great epics in India is one of them is called the Ramayana. And Ramayana is basically an allegory for the Aryan invasion of India, where you have this kind of upper caste royalty that's kidnapped by this ten-headed Akshasa from Lanka, what is Sri Lanka, and then he goes through the south trying to. His wife is kidnapped, and he goes through the south, and the only people he, the only things he incor- he uh, comes across are like monkeys. And other rakshas and rakshasas or like monsters. So this becomes an allegory of like friendly tribes versus antagonistic tribes. So, anyways, this is a kind of historical context in which Aryanism is like kind of owned by potentially some more reactionary uh, elements in India. It's just it is sections like like you know you do have groups like 
I would say Shiv Sena in Maharashtra and the RSS, the VHP as well, like very, very much in that tradition. But RSS is particularly like celebrates the kind of Nazi tradition. I mean, in India, it's also like the number one sold English book is still Mein Kampf. But that's not because Indians are reading that shit. It's because brain dead bourgeois Indians are like, I've heard of that book. Let me get it. And they're not reading anything. They're not, who's reading in India? Like, obviously, the, the working classes are reading, the working class are reading, but the, the, the elites aren't reading anything. But they're like, um, I remember one time I was with a friend who's from Germany, and we went to a like a, like a gathering. That was like a party. And this guy who owned the place was like, I was like, oh, yeah, like, blah, blah, blah. blah. He's like, oh, where are you from? This is a white guy. <clears throat> and then he was like, um, I, well, I'm from Germany. And he, the guy's like, oh, land of Hitler. And the guy was like horrified. He's like, what? But like, this is just like, he's like, you're an idiot. You're a brain dead Indian fucking elite. And you just know one thing. You're like, Mein Kampf, Hitler. You don't even know anything about it. So, I mean, I don't even think the fact that they sold them, that it sells the most is, is an indication of how fascist India is. It's just like, it's just an indication of how stupid these elites are. Well, this is the thing. I sent this video to the guys on here. Uh, there was a, a, this was a few years ago. There was a bar that opened in Seoul that was like, I think it was probably just, I would hope it's a product of just like historical ignorance, but it was a, a Nazi themed bar in Seoul, South Korea. You should send that video. You should send that video. Yeah. I mean, of course, like some, I, I, I'm not familiar with like what World War II history is taught like in like, you know, South Korean high schools. But yeah, it was like all this not in the, they interviewed the guy and he was like, what, what's the big deal? It's just in a, it's like a punk rock. Like he was viewing it as sort of like the way that like punk rock bands and like the seventies, but sort of like be edgy and appropriate kind of like fascist aesthetics. They weren't actually fascist, but it was just sort of like they were trying to be so punk rock. They were trying to adopt the most edgy aesthetics possible. And it, it, that's no. sort of the vibe. But of course, you know, some like German like university student at like SNU shows up at that place. And is just like, what in the actual fuck is going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, totally. <laughs> so it's not I mean, unique also, to India. There inversely, is a, though, you know how like the, the swastika is taken by the Hitler. It's like it's it's kind of it's turned or inverted and, and, and it becomes the. So it go, they take the swastik in India into and it becomes a swastika. Um, and they, but the thing is, I remember like on Twitter, like these, I think it was idiot Americans were like, I can't believe India still, you see this everywhere, like the swast. I'm like, this symbol predates Nazi Germany by thousands of years. My grandmother is literally doing, putting that symbol everywhere. She's not a Nazi. She doesn't even know what the Nazis are. She's like just doing this because that's a symbol. Uh, that's like a Hindu symbol. They're like, they need to change it. And I'm like trying to argue like reason. I'm like, I understand where you're coming from. You're clearly an idiot. This is the history. They're like, we don't care. This is what it means now. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean this to Indians, you idiot. I had this exact same experience because like in South Korea, like, you know, there's a, you know, the, a huge percentage of the population that's Buddhist. And like, I go hiking a lot. And when you go in the mountains, you find Buddhist temples and there are sw- swastics, I guess, or which, yeah, the uh, direction is reversed. I guess swastics is the uh, proper term. But anyway, when I came here, I was like, I noticed it because I'm like, well, that's sort of shocking to see these everywhere. But I knew that the context and I would just like be posting, oh, I just moved to Asia, posting pictures on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And then people were like, oh, my God, Mike, you're hanging out with Nazis. And I'm like, like Mike, this is the problem. You you were too sympathetic for too long with the woke, worry, pe- we'll with the woke people, dude. We'll That's the problem. It's a legacy of your past. It's coming back to haunt you. That's what I think it is. You know what I mean? You just loved that shit before. You loved it. 
And they're like, why are all these woke people attacking me? He's like, you made your fucking bed, bro. Now sleep Thank in you. it. Thank you, Shook. We we tried to drill that in. It's it's taking time, but I think we're getting into it. <laughs> this is why I don't Dude, have listen, a Mike, you can't now. be complaining about this. We have this song in India in Karnataka. It goes better than Elandu Maniamari Mrugagadigantaya. It means you can't build a hut on the top of a mountaintop and whine and cry about the sounds and roars of the tigers and elephants. That's you, dude. You can't build a life of uh, around woke-tastic people and then whine about the roars and the bellowing of their Instagram. I'm not, I'm not whining. I'm not whining. I'm just enjoying the, the humor. I, I think we should keep this this section in, but... This is a Patreon bonus episode. We'll, we'll, we'll put on a dunce cap on Mike and get... get this is our no, it's, it's all good. This is why I do not have a Twitter account anymore. I shall... So... Do you think there's a chance for the struggle? So how do you think, how much do, chance do you think the struggle has in basically winning, basically making it so that the legislation does not pass? So, And if so, what's going to happen to the movement afterwards and what's going to be the impact to the Indian left in general? Well, okay, I think it's a few things. I think it's that... Um, uh, you know, firstly, they've been through the difficult bits. It's like how long, okay, there's a very specific thing here where you're like, how long can hundreds of thousands of people stay in one place and sustain that, right? They stayed through the coldest, rainiest winters. Also, because it's seasonal, it's not, you know, you don't have the period until like basically summer and they could, you know, they could survive there a few more months. And also, so that that obviously is one one factor to consider. The other thing is that the government basically gave in on a very minor bit, which was like they'd withdrawn this kind of uh, electrical subsidy for lots of rural areas. And they sort of gave in on that. A very minor thing that that people want, but it indicates certain kinds of cracks. They're like, oh, we've given in on most of the demands. It's like people are like, cool, whatever. You gave us that. Doesn't change anything. So then, um, you know, it, they've, had, they've had 11 negotiations. Every time the government, you know, when it happens, you know, the negotiators, even before it happens, they're like, we don't expect anything, right? What that means is like, there's a level of confidence with people and organization and mobilization that is really, really hard to, it, you know, it, it hasn't shown any signs of weakening. It hasn't at all. Like, that's not me just be blindly like, you know, there's parts of the left. I mean, this is what I kind of find annoying about the trot left. Um, the trotty left. My, this is just me just shitting on Mike. Mike here. Um, is it, they're like mm. any kind. There's a movement. They're like, oh my god, this is a movement. Ah, and you're just like, come <laughs> on, man. Can we just be a little bit sober minded in this? Like, it's just like this. They're just like just creaming themselves every time. Oh my god, this is the movement. This is what it happens. Um, but yeah, so it's just like I don't. I actually think we have to be quite sober minded and be like, okay, what is what is going on here? Government is obviously on the back foot. They have a, the, they're, they're increasing, they're escalating in terms of how many people, like every, slowly escalating. So they're growing in strength, growing in numbers, expanding. You know, it's kind of like, um, and it, the government's throwing everything at them and they haven't, it hasn't weakened them, it's strengthened them. So it's kind of like, I don't know what the end result of this is going to be, but like, no matter what happens, if they go home right now, 
the government is significantly weaker and the ruling party is significantly weaker than when it started, right? So it's like, no matter what happens at this point, it's a win. It's a huge win um, because it's actually like pierced the kinds of like the, you know, it was like, it was unacceptable to be even remotely critical of, they were just arresting people who were like, I mean, I think political cartoons are lame. Like, I've never been impressed by political cartoons. People are like, check out this political cartoon. I'm like, it's not even funny. I've never laughed at a political cartoon. Um, it's just stupid. Generally, they're just stupid. But like, they were like, they would do like this even mild critiques of the government and they'd like throw them into an Indian dungeon for a month, you know? So it was like, they, this guy didn't, okay, there was this Muslim guy. Obviously, it was because he was Muslim. But they were like, he didn't even make a joke. He They were like, we feel like he's going to make a joke. So they went and they kidnapped him from his house and they threw him in an Indian dungeon. So it was just like, well, he hasn't even made the joke. They're like, we feel like he's going to make a joke. So it was like that. But now everyone's making fun of the government. Like, it's just, it's moved more and more mainstream. Like, not mainstream, but it's like, you know, they've battened down the hatches. But, you know, all around them, you have forces that are getting getting strength and confidence in, in, in just, you know. And, and so it's like, it's a chink in the armory, right? Like, increasingly. So I think that's, I think... You know, that's my kind of fairly conservative, actually, assessment. I think it's they're in a very good position. It's very impressive. I didn't think it was going to be like this. I think early days, I'm like, they're just going to get crushed into a million pieces. And now I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe this. It just speaks to how badass these guys are. Like, it's just like they've just stayed there. They've been beaten. They've been restricted. They created barricades so they couldn't even leave the place. They broke the barricades. Like, hundreds of them have died freezing they're also like cut, cut off all their food supply, cut off all the internet, tried to strip them of any, like they got a little bit of donation, strip them of that, freeze asses. And they're still like, yo, we're still here. We're going to, you're going to have to bury us here. You know, it's, it's, a, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Well, yeah, one thing reading about this the recurring thing, like looking at these interviews, especially the role of women, which is maybe something we should talk about with this, uh, is like a recurring thing in these interviews, which is kind of dark, but also sort of inspiring in a way is that people were just like, fuck it, like, I'm ready to die. Like, that was a recurring thing in all these interviews that I, I saw with, like, these farmers. And not even just farmers, there would be, like, you know, the sons of a farmer. And, like, you know, he'd be like, you know, fuck it. Like, we they're taking everything away from us. I'm, I'm standing my ground. I'm going to die. Which, again, is a very, like, dark and somber tone. But it's also kind of inspiring. That is it dark? I feel like the tradition of martyrdom needs to be reintroduced or at least introduced into... In a Western society. I don't know. They already exist in yeah. Western society, but it may be in American society. But it's like, I actually think it's like there is a tradition of this kind of would you die for a cause thing. And they're like, they can see how heavy and important this is. And when you have all the forces against you and you're like, all I have are my comrades on the left side and the right side, shoulder to shoulder. You're like, yeah, I'm going to die with these people. And it'll be, you know, it'll be for a just cause. I, mean, I don't mean that that I don't not celebrating. I'm not like being like, yeah, people should die. I'm just saying. It speaks to their resolve, you know? It does. I also think that, like, yeah, I mean, people have died, you know? It's not like, it's, you know, just the government figures. I don't think it's the government figures, actually. The official figures, like, basically the Indian mouthpieces of, like, you know, uh, uh, Times of India and shit. It's, like, 250. And the, you know, I think the unofficial numbers or the numbers that are put up in the union is, like, closer to 400, right? It's crazy. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, it is obviously, um, 
Uh, yeah, and obviously lots of the leadership are women. Well, I just, I, I was like reading about this, like in the lead up to this show. And like, you know, I, I've watched a few interviews with these women who were like, yeah, I've never really, you know, these are like very rural kind of like subsistence farmers. And they were like, yeah, I've never really gone out of my house that much. I've always been sort of like a, you know, uh, home mother or whatever. But it's like, this is the first time I'm part of a movement. And then like, she was also talking about how like great it is that like the women would go out on strike because that like had like a, a bigger resonance in terms of like their participation in the movement. And then like men for the first time were like cooking and preparing meals for their wives. Uh, and so there was this like interesting like uh, through the movement, there was sort of like a breakdown in like the traditional gendered uh, allocation of labor. Um, and like these women just talking about how like for the first time they're out of their house, they're not you know, stuck on the farm and like dividing their time between rearing children and, you know, doing tasks related to farming. They're actually joining this like mass movement. Um, I mean, it's kind of very touching, just w like listening to their interviews and stuff. I can. Yeah, I can no, I mean, it's obviously it's, it's, it's incredible. incredible. I also, I, also yeah. I don't know. Also, the gender division of labor is less clear with the division of labor is still very gendered, but it's not the same as kind of like social reproducer material right. producer that you find under like total subsumption of capitalism, right? Like, I mean, you actually don't even find that really now as much because it's like deprivations reach so, so such high levels that like each are social reproducing and material producing. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's a much, it's a more, it's, um, it's a bit more of a, uh, shared relationship. Obviously it's still very divided, but that's my understanding, at least from the state I studied, which is Karnataka. Um, <clears throat> but it's still amazing, obviously. You know, again, it's when, uh, kind of going back to like, you know, when I was, you know, when I lived in Iowa, one thing I kind of like discovered was that Iowa is the home state of Norman Borlaug, you know, who people see as the, the main architect of the Green Revolution. And it's, I could, I could be wrong here, but from what I insinuated, the Green Revolution was exporting a lot of these corporate farm practices that have have that were used to essentially devastate the american agricultural economy that's why we see like high suicide rates farmers that's why like small farmers don't really exist anymore it's mostly corporate factory farms and such and i wanted to ask how, how much the green revolution has played an effect into corporate consolidation of india's farm economy um yeah it played a huge effect on it i mean it's like um it was part of the Green Revolution was part of a kind of cocktail of reforms that also included, actually, um, the introduction of the APMC and the MSPs, which were like moving towards kind of crops that were highly had high yield. Um, also, the introduction of a number of different kinds of products like pesticides and also like certain kinds of seeds and various different kind of farming practices that made it so that people with access to those kinds of things were, which became increasingly prohibitively expensive, also consolidated those kinds of power. So it's like, you know, you have certain kind, certain, for, certain rural capitalist, more capitalist farmers being able to, there's a kind of capitalist in the sense that they have a huge number of employees and their labor, they have investment in kind of labor saving in, um, technology are able to then have access to those both technologies, but also like seeds and, and, and farming practices that then mean that they're able to consolidate more and more power. And it also means that you're able to marginalize more and more 
small farmers, even if the, there's restrictions on how much of the land those small farmers can sell to those big farmers in certain areas, it means that they're not, they're increasingly not competitive, right? Uh, and they become more and more subsistent because they're not, it's not effective to sell to the market. So I think, yeah, I think green revolution played an enormous role in changing the kind of uh, composition of rural India, but um, but there were still restrictions. And I think that that's what these laws, and I think the laws that this is intended to lead to, are uh, meant to kind of finish the job that the Green Revolution didn't do. And that's been the accusation by these unions. And I think there's a lot of legitimacy to that. So uh, the question I had was whether the farmer struggle is connected to any other movements, whether directly or indirectly abroad. And uh, so what kind of repercussions internationally in Asia and around the globe that we might expect afterwards? Um, I think in general, I would make a say that the thing about farmers movements that they're not, they tend not to be as internationalist, right? Like what is it that, you know, we talk about like, you know, how like uh, the great doubling, you know, like between 1973 and 2000, you had a great doubling of the international working class because people become move from peasant to to working class as capital expands. What that does is it it basically increases the the worker as a social force globally. And there's more linkages between, quite literally, because people are working for the same companies, but greater linkages between workers around the world generally. There's There's a possibility for solidarity more generally more than farmers like farmers generally haven't really there isn't that much of a tradition of internationalism that i can think of with farmers um because lots of the demands are very specific to that area um and to that state or that region i think uh in terms of like solidarity actions that people have taken with with farmers the great the places where you've seen the greatest actions, and you saw that happen in Birmingham here, you had it in London here, you had huge demonstrations, you also had huge demonstrations in Canada, is places with huge, with large Punjabi populations. So that's where you see the demonstrations at you know their highest point in Canada and, and England have large Punjabi populations. So that's the kind of response internationally. But to be honest, they don't. My, my understanding is that there isn't many connections outside of India. But that's not because the particularities of this specific struggle. I think that's particularities of the composition of farmers generally. So, uh, if our listeners wanted to continue following this, the, the development of this struggle, what's a good source of information? Is there like an English language? Like, uh, I think a good website uh, or a news outlet. A good website is follow? The Wire. It's a kind of critical left, but without being like, without being like, you know, it's still a news source, is what I'm saying. Um, it's not like the socialist worker or something. Um, so it's uh, The Wire. India or something. Dot in. Uh, and that's a good source. That's kind of where I kind of get my latest information. Um, and they're very sympathetic to the farmer struggle. So I've been eating popcorn. Has that been making an annoying noise? No, no. No. Okay. no. Oh, great. I'll continue then. Hopefully Tim can edit that out as well. Well, you can edit out the popcorn <laughs> crunching noise. I don't know. <laughs> he does the magic.
You recently wrote a very interesting book, Monopsony Capitalism, which I've been reading. And I want you have to have you. I wow. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. I bought a copy from a worker owned bookstore and had it specially delivered to South Korea. No. But anyway, Monopsony Capitalism, your new book is very interesting. And one thing I really like about this book, I'm still working my way through it, is that it's rigorously academic in terms of the research. But also your writing style is like very exciting and you weave in like lots of anecdotes about doing stuff actually on the ground. So you're not some just sort of like distant observer in your London Tower, like looking down and just reading data. Like you weave in these like really interesting stories of like you in these places being a translator for like uh, union activists. So the book is about the the tra transformations in the garment sector industry. So talk a little bit about your book, Monopsony Capitalism. So yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, that's very kind. Um, the book is based on uh, research in a number of different contexts and has a series of cases from Honduras, China, India, and bits from Vietnam, but that didn't make the final cut. I mean, they did kind of bits, but not really. And interviews with activists in like Cambodia and, and Turkey and other places. But basically it's... um. The argument of the book is that you have a kind of it's, it's it's you know garment sector and labor intensive sectors more generally footwear are helpful ways of analyzing the sector had analyzing industrial capital more generally because they're starter sectors they're first to come to first to go in the developmental process because they're so they're so labor intensive and don't have that much investment in capital they're also outsourced they've always been outsourced meaning there's a separation between the buyers and the sellers and the producers of the of the product. So, you know, you walk into a Nike shop or a shop that sells Nikes and you buy a pair of Nikes, you know, Nike basically owns none of the production process and it owns the swoosh, the, the brand. People are aware of this kind of dynamic. And what that means is that it fundamentally changes the relationship and the distribution of value across those supply chains. So monopsony, that word just means like kind of buyer's market. It means that buyers have the power in the supply chain. It's kind of inverse of monopoly. Monopoly is like, Let's say you have, you know, three shoe companies that have 33% each of the, of the global shoe market and one kind of takes over another one. And that has 66% monopoly power, degree of monopoly power. Monopsy is a kind of inverse. It's like the relationship between that shoe company and the various elements of that shoe. So like the rubber soles and the producers of those rubber soles or like, you know, the laces, producers of those laces, you know, so it's like a vertical relationship versus a horizontal relationship. So if you have many, many sellers and few buyers, it means you have this inverse relationship. It's kind of a, it's kind of, it's the same way it's used in the labor market analysis. So let's imagine we're all workers and Mike is an employer, right? So then we, if we are, um, you know, if we, if there's only one uh, job, we're competing against each other for that job. There's a degree of monopsony there, right? Let's say there's four times as many workers, that degree of monopsony is greater. And there's more people willing to do that job for less and less. And so Mike has more power now. And so, but what I'm arguing in the book and what you demonstrated over the last hundred years is that over time, this monopsony relationship means that, like say Mike is Nike and we're of various suppliers. Over time, he's putting downward pressure on the production of a shoe or a shirt or whatever. And over time, that means that like the price demands go down and down and fewer and fewer suppliers are able to compete. As fewer and fewer suppliers are able to compete, the, the ones that die, uh, you know, let's say I'm the one who's producing these cheap products. I'm occupying and increasing my degree of monopoly power. As that happens, it means that that value relationship in terms of how Mike 
extracting increasing numbers of value becomes more distributive because you know the disruptive power of those firms. So I look at a number of different cases, like the strike of Hu Yen in China, Arvind, which is a shoe producer, like one one in you know the five pairs of shoes in this room that we're wearing. I mean, I'm not wearing any shoes, but it are will be produced in a Hu Yen facility, right? That's huge. That's very different from like 20, 30 years ago when you had tens of thousands of producers around the world. So that means that Nike or Adidas or whatever have have a changing relationship with their suppliers, where the suppliers have greater disruptive power. And so I looked at, for example, one of the strikes I looked at was at the Yen facility in 2014. It was the largest private sector strike of, uh, of an employer in Chinese history. And since then as well. But it's, um, you know, 50,000 workers go on strike in uh, Guangzhou and, and they... Uh, they were able to extract huge numbers of kind of, uh, uh, you know, of concessions, basically, but they didn't win their demands. But also, most importantly, Nike and Adidas couldn't outsource. They did it short term, but they went back to them. They didn't cut and run. So that's an, it's an important indication of the kind of power that these firms have and the kinds of powers suppliers, uh, workers in those firms have, right? Historically, if you make a, dem- you know, we have this kind of, you know, the ultra left sometimes will be like, you can demand the universe. It's like, no, you really can't, unfortunately. That would be great if you could. Uh, or like the neoclassical economists who are like, workers get what they deserve because we live in an equilibrium where supply and demand like shapes the entire world. It's not that either. It's that workers get what they demand based on what's available, right? So if you if there's very little available at these kind of very marginal suppliers who are never able to like, escape the orbit of that marginality due to the monopsonistic relationship, Workers can't make demands because they make demands. These these huge brands just cut and run, right? Whereas if you have a firm like Yuyan or Arvind that I looked at in India or other firms, it means that workers can make greater demands. And it's not an automatic relationship, but that's basically the demand. Like you have greater de- if the firm has great if the supplier has greater disruptive power, workers have more greater disruptive power. You know, and 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 also if the, if those firms are <clears throat> investing more at the point of production in in labor saving technology, for example. Because it's much harder to replace them. So let's say you're a capitalist in Cambodia or India or Korea or whatever. That you, you know, it, 20 years ago it might have taken a million pounds to open up a firm, an export-oriented f- garment factory. Let's say an auto factory is 100 million. Aeronautics pro- factory is like a billion. What that means is to replace the that aeronautics factory becomes near impossible. So workers there have much more power. Whereas if you're like in the garment factory, if, you know, 20 years ago, it's a million. Now it's three million. It means that monopsonistic relationship is 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 less, which means they can't replace them as easily because you don't have capitalists that can, as many capitalists who can who, who are willing or able to do to open up a factory. Anyways, that is the the basic thesis of the book, and that's also like backed up with a host of examples and in depth stuff. Uh, and so, um, what it means is that it's. Uh, I'm doing that thing where I'm like, it's so exciting. The world's changing. Uh, but yeah, it is actually the case that, um, well, I mean, capitalism is a wily, capitalism a wily one. But what it looks like is that traditional model of what we understand to be a sweatshop is changing. It might be kind of a twilight of the sweatshop age, but it also might just be a new phase of neoliberalism. Well, it's a great book. I've been reading it and very much enjoying it. Enjoying it. Not exactly a question, but I think uh, the, the biggest lesson that I draw from today's conversation is that sometimes you got to go out and camp on a road and not come home. Yeah. 
Exactly. I, the second lesson was that the Indian bourgeoisie are the dumbest in the world. I I don't know if I can accept that right now, but I'll well, keep there it in there mind. is stiff competition. Yeah, yeah. It's I think I think the case is that uh, when the bourgeoisie are like in stark power for so long, they get lazy and they they start using their brain power or train to become them when when they feel challenged. And it seems like India hasn't been challenged for so long, and maybe this farmer strike might uh, kick some sense into them, or even better, <laughs> kick them out. Maybe. Fingers crossed. All right. Well, seems like that is a very good note to end on. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Ashok Kumar, for joining us and taking the time out. I know you're a busy man. Uh, everyone listening, uh, buy Ashok's new book, Monopsony Capitalism. It is a very interesting read. Thank you, Ashok, for joining us today on Red Star Over Asia. If you enjoyed this discussion and you want to hear more, subscribe on Spotify or Apple or your podcast platform of choice. Uh, Next episode, we're going to have another special guest on to talk about Myanmar and the coup and the mass movement and resistance against that coup. So stay tuned for that. Thank you, comrades, for listening, and we'll sign off here.